Um, It's probably not news to any of you guys um, to hear that in this fast-paced digital age, even though we seem more connected to people online than ever before, there's actually many who feel desperately lonely. Actually, psychologists are calling this moment in the West a loneliness epidemic. Um, Mother Teresa years ago actually said loneliness and the feeling of being unwanted is the most terrible form of poverty. She went on to say, the greatest disease in the West today is not TB or leprosy, it's being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for. So maybe you even saw that in the recent um, a New York Times article that across the pond in the UK, they appointed uh, a minister of loneliness. Isn't that interesting? They're like, hey, sorry about Brexit, but here's a minister of loneliness, you know? Um, but, it, but it's interesting, is that a helpful solution? Like, is it this issue of loneliness, should this be something that governments should um, go after systemically and try to help their people? Or um, is this something that we just need better technology? We need better apps to help us meet new people and get connected. Is that what we need? Most of you are like, no, please no. (laughs) But seriously, what is the solution? And I think here as a leader at Bridgetown Church, we're becoming more and more convinced that at least part of the solution, like towards a solution, is a consistent meal with community. It's this regular weekly practice of sharing a meal at a table, consistently present to a few friends, present to ourselves, and present to God in our lives. So if you were here um, over the past couple weeks, and particularly last week, if you missed it, go check out the podcast. Um, John Mark talked about rethinking how we receive the bread and the cup, the Lord's Supper. Um, Traditionally, this has been a somber moment where we remember our sin, we remember Christ's death on the cross, and um, we learned that last week, it was actually very different for the early church, that it was more of a celebration. And rather than a sip and a bite at the altar, like we've often done here at the front, it was a full meal with your community around a table. And um, John Mark Hicks, in his excellent book, First of all, what's with the two first names? It's a little pretentious, just pick a name. All right, go with one. He says it this way. It appears that the practice of the supper in the early church was very different from ours. Their supper was home-based, a full meal with food and drink, an interactive fellowship at a table and characterized by joyous celebration. Our practice of the supper as a silent, solemn, individualistic eating of bread and drinking of wine is radically dissimilar from the joyous communal meal that united Christians in the first century house churches. So this is kind of what we've been unpacking and learning. um, How we're kind of making this transition from coming forward every week and having this solemn, quiet moment, bread in the cup, to in our communities, in our homes, in our apartments, a full meal celebrating the body and the blood of Christ. And I think that um, what we're gonna do tonight, I think it's gonna be super helpful. We're gonna actually look through kind of a quick journey through the Hebrew scriptures 
and see um, how this supports and leads up to this meal that Jesus had where he inaugurated the Lord's Supper on the Passover with a few of his disciples that we're gonna read out of the account of Luke. So if you're with me, um, this is gonna be fast-paced and super helpful. And of course, we have to start in Genesis chapter one. So please turn with me there, Genesis chapter one. If you're new to the Bible, just flip through the first couple pages and you will get to Genesis chapter one. Starting in verse 26, context is, this is the account of God's creation of the heavens and the earth. It's building to this crescendo, this moment of the creation of mankind. And here it is in verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So we see right off the bat, God's original intent of creating humanity was to have fellowship, intimacy, relationship with him. Now think about this for a minute. God exists and has always existed from eternity past as Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect love and in perfect community. God is not lonely, not incomplete in any way. And out of total freedom, out of this love, the triune community wanted to share their perfect love with humanity. And and honestly, the entire story of scripture shows how God desires to be in intimate relationship with mankind, sharing this loving fellowship. And and what a great reminder to us here in the city in 2018, just to remember that, you know, you are not the result of chaos and primordial ooze. You actually were created by your God with intent, and that intent is relationship that God knows you, created you, has a plan for your life, has an incredible destiny, work to be done here on planet Earth before the end times, and that is all surrounded by this relationship with him. You are not alone. You're not left to fend for yourself, to figure out meaning of life. There is meaning, and it's in Jesus Christ, and he's here. Isn't that amazing? So the triune God opens himself up and invites us into his circle of love and relationship. And while I was meditating and thinking about this this week, I just remember um, years ago when my um, kids were little and my daughter Jillian was probably two or three and she would always be wearing her like Disney princess, you know, dress. Some of you guys still have one. And she... um, I remember like, you know, Jenny and I felt like that period of our life with three little kids was constantly in the kitchen, like making food, cleaning up food, making food, cleaning up food. And I remember, you know, just a moment of like being in the kitchen and we're listening to music, probably John Mayer in the background. And like I would come next to Jenny and, and kind of hold her and we would dance a little bit and forget about the dishes. And my daughter Jillian would come up next to us and just stare right up at us. And then she would like stick out her hands and we would kind of open up our embrace and let her in and then we would kind of, you know, dance and sway with her. And as God brought that memory to mind, I was like, that's it. 
It's exactly what it is. God in his love and in his perfect community has opened himself up out of his love and welcomed us in. That's the story of the entire scriptures summed up. God welcoming you into his eternal loving embrace. And one of the ways that we'll see that God invites us in is by inviting us to a meal, inviting us to be at the table with God himself. And um, there's this beautiful icon that this artist, Russian artist in the uh, Middle Ages, 1400s, um, I forget his name, last name, uh, Rublev. And he created, he, he drew this and he basically, um, this has been called, not the original name, but it's been called the Trinity. Because what he drew was Father, Son, and Spirit. And they're sitting around a table and the way that, we've talked about this before, but the way that even their hands are postured is a welcoming of whoever's standing in front of this painting, this icon, and looks at it. It's an invitation for you to join them at the table. Is that an awesome image? That's God's intention, to welcome you to eat with him. But as you know in the story of the scriptures, after Genesis 1 comes Genesis 3 shortly later and communion is destroyed by eating the wrong thing. Adam and Eve break their union with God, their relationship with God is fractured. So not only is it a fracturing between humanity and God, but even between the first husband and wife, there's now a fracture in their relationship. They're ashamed and there's distance between them. And the heart of this whole thing was breaking trust. God said, let me be your father and let me tell you what is good, trust me. And they were like, nah, we got this. And they chose not to trust God. And ever since that choice, things have spiraled out of control. Their first two kids, one kills the other. Then a few narratives later, there's this guy Lamech and he has several wives and he's violent towards them. And you just see humanity spiraling out of control. But God in his deep commitment establishes something called sacrifice and covenant to bring humanity back into relationship with him. So I know a lot of you guys woke up this morning and you were just like, you know, what is it with the covenant meals with God and Israel? I wish they would talk about that at church. Today's your day, okay? So, since the fall, God has established these covenant meals with his creatures, with humanity, in order to have community with them. So God established fellowship through sacrifice. And then he confirmed that fellowship through the eating of a meal together. In other words, God is so set on being in relationship with humanity that he will even sacrifice part of his beautiful creation. I mean, think about the animal kingdom. God created in Genesis chapters one and two, you see God's intricate, like mastery, creative genius as he creates each animal. And he loves them, he cares for them. It's like an artist creating a beautiful sculpture. Like, they're proud of it, it's, it's beautiful. It's an expression of them given for others to see. Yet, because of his deep, deep, love and commitment to be in relationship with humanity, with you, 
He's willing to sacrifice part of his beautiful creation, one of his creatures, an animal that he lovingly created. So let's unpack this a little bit. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. Just a couple more chapters over there. Genesis 15, we're introduced to this guy, Abram, later called Abraham, you know, you know this dude. Genesis chapter 15, verse one. After this, the word of the Lord, and you know when you're reading in your Bible and you see all caps, L-O-R-D, that is the, and the, you know, the translators will tell you this down in the notes at the bottom, that is God's proper name that he gave to his people, to Israel, Yahweh. It's his personal name. So when you see all caps like that, that's Yahweh. So after this, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Yahweh, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the only one that's gonna inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus, and nobody likes that guy. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Now, I cannot stress how important it was in this ancient setting for Abraham to have descendants. There is so much wrapped into this in their worldview. If you die without descendants, it's as if you never lived. It doesn't matter if you had a great inheritance or great life. Having descendants was everything. And Abraham, Abram at this point, and his wife Sarah have none. Verse four. Then the word of Yahweh came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who's your own flesh and blood will be your heir. So he took him outside and he said, look up to the sky and count the stars, if you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. God's making this massive promise to him. You're gonna have so many offspring. You're worried about having one child. You're gonna have so many, you won't even be able to count them, Abram. Verse six is beautiful. Abraham believed Yahweh, and God credited it to him as righteousness. Now what's interesting is, Abraham was a dude living in another land and he was a pagan idolater. He was worshiping all these pagan gods. But when God showed up on the scene and he said, Abraham, I'm the one true God, follow me. I'm gonna do this for you. Abraham just goes, okay, I believe you. It's amazing, it's this beautiful, radical obedience that Abraham demonstrates so well. Verse seven, he also had said to him, I am Yahweh, who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, that's Abraham's old town. It'd be like, dude, you used to live out in, you know, some, you used to live in Coos Bay, no offense, and I brought you in <laughs> to this beautiful place. And Abram's like, yeah, dude, you did, thank you. I brought you in this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, sovereign Yahweh, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So Yahweh said to him, bring me, now focus here, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram shrugs, he's like, okay. He brought all these to him. I mean, how's that obedience? God's like, hey, just bring me these random animals. Abram's like, okay, and he does it. <laughs> that, can, that spoke to you, huh? She's like, I'm from Coos Bay and I had a farm. That means a lot to me. <laughs> Just kidding. So verse 10, Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half because that would be super hard. The birds of prey, 
came down, like picture like the crows or whatever, the vultures come down on the carcasses, but Abram drives them away. So picture the scene in your mind. Verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then Yahweh said to him, this is like dream state right now, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish that nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions. So this is prophecy. Something's going to happen in the future. Verse 15, you, however, you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. And Abram's like, thanks, I guess. Verse 16, in the fourth generation of your, uh, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So his, in the fourth generation of his descendants are gonna come back and inherit all this land, God's saying. Verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, picture this in your mind's eye, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch, can you picture that? Appeared and passed between the pieces. Now, and then God declares this covenant to him. Now, look up for a second. This is weird, right? God says to Abraham, hey, I'm gonna give you this land. Your descendants are gonna inherit this. I'm gonna give you so many children. You won't even be able to count us like the stars of the sky. I'm gonna be with you and I'm gonna bless you. Your people, they're gonna have hard times, but they will be restored. And then Abraham's like, yeah, that's great. Cuts animals in half, separates them, and sets this whole thing up. What is the meaning of that? Well, what's interesting is, in Hebrew, the, the direct and correct translation isn't that God and Abraham made a covenant. It's that God and Abraham cut a covenant. In Hebrew, you don't make a covenant, you cut one. Because what you do is you cut the animals in two and as God and Abram pass through the middle of it, you basically are saying when you make a promise, two parties come together out of their own free will to make this promise to one another. You say, may it be to me like these animals if I don't follow through on my end of the bargain. Like if I, it's basically putting your life with your word. I will do this. And that's what God does with Abraham. Now notice what's really interesting is in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures, um, these slaughtered animals that were used to make these covenants were not left on the ground to rot. They were actually immediately prepared for a feast. See, the pattern is two parties would come together and God instituted this, and but later, you know, um, humans did this as well. But two parties would come together, they would cut a covenant with an animal they would make the promise and the pact to each other and then they would celebrate it at the table. They sacrificed the animal at the altar and celebrate it at the table. And interestingly enough, um, our, our kind of best analogy in modern times would be like a wedding. At a wedding, two parties out of their own free will, hopefully, come together, make a covenant before witnesses and then what follows after the, you know, the whole covenant is said and done? What follows? A meal. You make a covenant, you celebrate with a meal. That's this pattern. Now you don't have to turn there, but Genesis 17, really interesting. God makes another covenant with Abram, and this is the covenant of circumcision. And no animals are cut, but some people are. 
that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> but what happens right after that covenant that God makes with Abraham and all of Abraham's family, all of the men, what happens in the very next narrative is these three guests come and have a meal with Abraham and Sarah. And what's crazy is, let's put that slide back up of uh, the icon. The original title when the artist painted this in 1400s was the hospitality of Abraham. Because in the artist's mind, these three guests that come and visit Abraham, it's a very mysterious narrative and, and scholars disagree. But one of the things that's very clear is these three visitors that visit Abraham and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah honor them and treat them as God. And even in the text, God speaks, Yahweh speaks through those three. And I think it's pretty clear, a little foreshadowing of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. God makes a covenant with Abraham of circumcision and the very next thing he does is appear to Abraham and sit and have a meal with him. Verse 30, or excuse me, um, Genesis 31, if you skip ahead a little bit further, you don't have to turn there. I'll summarize. Um, Jacob and this guy Laban have um, kind of this rift between them. Laban's chasing after Jacob and his family. God shows up and tells Laban, hey, knock it off. Jacob is a descendant of Abram. I'm gonna protect this guy, leave him alone. So Laban offers to make a covenant with Jacob. They swore an oath to each other. They sacrificed an animal. And then they had a massive meal to celebrate and confirm their covenant. The meal was this symbol of peace between these two men. And basically, I'm just building, this is how you do it. This is the way in the Hebrew scriptures that you make a covenant. You sacrifice the animal, you make a pact, you eat a meal to celebrate it. And all of that is a setup for the big covenant, Exodus 24. Turn there with me. I know some of you guys are already there. You're like, I hope he gets to Exodus 24. We are, we're doing it. Exodus 24, this is gonna be good. This is the covenant that God establishes with not just Abram, but the whole nation of Israel. This is a powerful moment, pinnacle of the Hebrew scriptures. Exodus chapter 24. Then Yahweh said to Moses, come up to Yahweh, you, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel. You're to, you are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach Yahweh. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. So here's the deal. They're at this mountain, Mount Sinai. Yahweh, God, is at the top of the mountain. All the people are at the bottom. God invited them up. They got scared, and so then he's like, never mind, you can't come up. But Moses, you can come up. Everyone else, don't touch the mountain. Um, the people can't come with them. So verse three, when Moses went up, oh, excuse me, when Moses went and told the people all that Yahweh had said, his words and his laws, they responded with one voice. By the way, they're making a covenant here. Watch the language, see what happens. They say, okay, yes, everything Yahweh has said, we will do. So in other words, Moses comes down, and he says, hey, here's what God said. If you wanna be in this covenant with him, here's what it means. And all the people say, yeah, we'll do it, totally. We are in, right? So um, Moses, verse four, Moses wrote it all down, everything that Yahweh had said. Then he got up early the next morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to Yahweh. Verse six, Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, read it to the people and they responded again, we will do everything Yahweh has said. We will obey. So Moses says, okay. And he took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and he said, this is the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. So basically, they're making a covenant now. They've killed the animals, they've sprinkled the blood, and the the Israelite people are like, yes, we will do what Yahweh says. And Moses is like, okay, we're making this covenant. We're doing this thing. Verse nine. Moses, Aaron, Nahab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of some rare jewel as bright blue as the sky. So just pause, look up for a second. Moses, Adab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders now go up the mountain and they see God. That's crazy because right before this, Yahweh says, hey, look, if anybody comes near the mountain and they're unauthorized, they're unclean, whatever, and they touch the mountain or they try and come up the mountain, I will kill them. Like, I'm holy, they need to like, respect this, right? But now, after they've made this covenant, Moses and these leaders go up to the top of the mountain and they actually are in God's presence. They see him. Just imagine that. Verse 11. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of Israel. In other words, he let them stay. And they saw God and they ate and they drank. I cannot overemphasize the magnitude of this event. The God of Israel, who is holy, if you approached him wrong, you'd be killed instantly. And now they're at a table eating and drinking with God. This is insane. So Yahweh becomes the God of Israel and the prophets later say this is like a marriage covenant that Israel has become the bride of Yahweh. They're in this covenant together of faithfulness. And then the covenant, there's the animals killed, then the covenant is made, and then they celebrate the covenant by eating this meal. So going forward, Israel is told over and over and over to celebrate by killing an animal, eating a meal, and celebrating this covenant. They're called to remember the covenant, to renew it regularly, to keep going back, having the meal. For instance, when Israel finally gets into their promised land, the very first thing they do is offer sacrifices, have a giant meal, and celebrate God's goodness and his faithfulness to them. So we see this pattern confirmed over and over and over. The altar is where animals are sacrificed, and then the table is where they're eaten in celebration. So let's just um, press a little bit deeper into this concept of the altar and the table. I think this is super helpful. Just nerd out on this for a second with me. And again, um, Hicks on this. The altar is the blood ritual. It's the moment of atonement and forgiveness. God cleanses his people with blood, but the altar is followed by a table. The blood covenant establishes our relationship with God so that we may eat in his presence. The table is the experience of reconciliation and fellowship. While the altar may be a time of sadness, penance, and guiltiness, the table is a time of joy, communion, and commitment. 
And again, here's a little compare contrast. And even think about this list as we were doing receiving communion, the bread and the cup before, where we would come forward. Think about that compared to being at a table with friends celebrating what Jesus has done. That's the difference. At the altar, it's silent. At the table, it's interactive. The altar is solemn while the table is celebrative. The altar is focused on the individual while the table's communal. The altar is a place of sorrow and the table is a place of joy. The altar is known by this remorse where the table is full of thanksgiving. The altar is contemplative while the table has fellowship. The altar is introspective while the table is expressive. The altar is known and marked by penance where the table is an opportunity for recommitment to following Christ. And then the altar is focused on the death, the sacrifice made, whereas the table is focused on resurrection. So see the difference between those two? And, and don't get me wrong, there is a time and a place for silent penance and introspection, but we don't stay there. We don't stay at the altar. We move to the table, shared life and celebration. Hicks, one more time, this is so helpful for me. One more time. We must distinguish between the altar and the table. The altar is the cross of Christ, but the table is the Lord's Supper. The two should not be confused, but neither should they be disconnected. At the table, we remember the altar and share in the altar's benefits, but at the table, oh, excuse me, but the table should not be identified with the altar. The table is the experience of peace and communion, which is celebrated with joy and thanksgiving. Think friends around the table, like a birthday party, a celebration. The altar is remembered and re-experienced in this communion, but it is not experienced as sadness, but as good news. Now, we're building up to Jesus with his disciples, celebrating the Passover, but before we get there, a couple things. Here's what we learn by looking at Israel and their covenant meals. Number one, there is always joy at the table. They're not sad occasions, they're celebrations. God instituted these feasts and festivals to celebrate and remember the goodness in his relationship to Israel. Secondly, Israel eats these meals in the presence of God. Remember the three visitors that came and ate a meal with Abram and Sarah? Or remember Moses and the elders going up in Exodus 24 and eating a meal on the top of the mountain with God? Like God's a participant because he's part of these covenants with his people. His presence is part of his commitment to the covenant and it's seen at each of these meals. Number three, Israel eats to remember and renew the covenant. When they eat these meals, they remember God's goodness and they celebrate his faithfulness and they rededicate themselves to God. So, likewise, and we're getting here, but when we eat and drink at the table of the Lord, we eat and drink a covenant meal with God and with each other. More on that to come. So I know some of you guys are wondering, well, what about the Passover, right? All this is leading to the Passover. Here we go. Okay, the Passover. This is a meal to celebrate and remember God delivering his people out of Egypt. Do you remember the story? Um, God says, hey, everybody kill a lamb and eat this food and put the blood over the mantle of your house because the angel of the Lord's coming through. If there's no blood on the house, 
there's gonna be destruction. If there's blood on the house, I will pass over you. Remember that? The Passover, right? So for Israel, the Passover is a time of praise, joy, thanksgiving. It's a celebration of God's redemption. The Passover was a time also of not just looking backward, but celebrating God's faithfulness in that moment. But even beyond that, looking forward at the Passover, they actually were anticipating the Messiah. Part of the Passover was this looking forward to the time that the Messiah would come and put the world back to rights. So while you're thinking about that, also remember that there's three types of sacrifice in the Old Testament. Really nerdy, but really important. Number one, the burnt offering. The whole animal is burned up before God. Second kind, sin offering. The fat is burned, but then the meat is given to the priests and the Levites. Third kind, the Thanksgiving offering, and this is what the Passover is. Thanksgiving offering. The fat is burned up, some goes to the priest, but then the rest is eaten as a celebration with friends and family. So just picture this for a minute. Um, the Passover was a lamb, but some of these other Thanksgiving you know, um, offerings were bulls or whatever. A bull in that time that was sacrificed was on average 800 pounds of meat. So they would go in, yeah, it's crazy, right? They go in, they um, have the, the Levites, and how funny is it that like the priests, the guys that would have like my job were sacrificing the animals. Can you imagine that? You'd bring your animals to the Bridgetown office. I'm like, I'm not doing that one. John Mark, you got it, buddy. <laughs> but they would, you know, they would butcher um, this large bull and then there's 800 pounds of meat and they would give some to the, they'd burn up the fat, give some to the Levites and the priests and then there's no refrigeration. So you would have a massive celebration. You would eat. So just to set the record straight, it seems like God is really into meat, okay? <laughs> I'm just saying. Some of you guys need to rethink your veganism. <laughs> no, but this reminds me of my daughter Miriam. She had her tonsils out last year and you know, she's just in misery for a week, can't eat anything and she's like, you know, miserable. And I remember coming home and I'm like, hey, how are you? And she's like, I want meat. <laughs> And to make it worse, she was like watching daytime TV and there was like some commercial for Kumi Buffet. Kumi, I guess it's a buffet, Kumi Buffet. And on the commercial for Kumi Buffet, there was like all of this meat. And she's like, I want meat, I wanna go to the Kumi Buffet. <laughs> it's like, okay, honey, as soon as you're better, we will go. So back to the Passover. In preparation for the Passover, the animals brought to the temple, sacrificed, butchered, then brought back to the worshipers and they would have this feast with their family. So not only was there the, the meat at the Passover, but also the Passover included an offering of bread that they would eat and an offering of wine that would drink. So in other words, the Passover was a full meal, right? So with that in mind, our final stop on this amazing journey Luke chapter 22, turn with me, Luke 22. This is now Jesus about to have Passover with his disciples, Luke 22. Verse seven says, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go make preparations for us to eat the Passover. So what's happening here? Jesus is about to eat the Passover with his disciples. Look at verse, um, Let's jump into the actual meal. Now what's interesting is Jesus follows the format of a typical Jewish Passover feast. 
there was like blessing, there was wine, there was the meal, there was wine again, there was a prayer. And Jesus follows that exact pattern. And let's just look at verse, man, verse 19. And he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now that's not normal Passover talk. What's he talking about? Verse 19. And he took, I already said that. Verse 20. <laughs> in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Pause. That's crazy talk. If you're a good Hebrew, which all of his disciples are, and you knew anything about the story of God in the Hebrew scriptures, as soon as he says the words covenant, blood, you would go right back to remember Exodus 24, when God makes a covenant with Israel and sprinkles the blood and they say, they say, we promise to obey. And God says, I promise to be your God. And then they go up on top of the mountain and Moses and the elders eat and drink with God. Remember that? So here is where everything converges. Now it's the Passover. Jesus is gonna be the Passover lamb. He's inaugurating a new covenant in his blood. Nobody else has inaugurated another covenant since that one in Exodus 24. And now Jesus is saying, I am just like Yahweh and I am establishing this covenant with you in my own blood. And then guess what he does? He seals it with a meal. Just like in Exodus 24 when Moses and the elders eat with God. He gives them the wine. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. He is the Passover lamb. He tells them to eat my body, to drink my blood, because he's about to go to the altar to be sacrificed. In effect, Jesus eats this last Passover with his disciples, but he reinterprets the meaning in light of his coming kingdom. This Passover meal, Jesus points to a new exodus, a new freedom that we all get to experience being freed from the slave master of sin. The Lord's Supper is a fulfillment, it's an enhancement of the Passover where this climactic, redemptive work of God is experienced through Jesus at the table with his disciples. And Hicks, one more time, there might be two more. One more by Hicks on this. We must distinguish between the altar and the table. The altar is the cross of Christ, but the table is the Lord's Supper. The two should not be confused, but neither should they be disconnected. At the table, so picture Jesus at the table. Um, at the table, we remember the altar and we share the altar's benefits, but the table should not be identified with the altar. The table is the experience of peace and communion which is celebrated with joy and thanksgiving. The altar is remembered and re-experienced in this communion, but it's not experienced as sadness, but as good news. So when Jesus sits with his disciples and has this meal, this last supper, Jesus will then be sacrificed on the altar, but then he commissions them and on to us as the church to continue to remember what Jesus did at the altar, we remember with celebration at the table. So again, with that in mind, three things that we learn from this. Number one, there's joy at the communion table. 
When we sit with our community and we break bread and we pour wine, the table is not a sad place. It's a place of celebration of what Jesus, the Lamb of God, has done for us. And sure, at the table in our Bridgetown communities, we share the ups and downs of life for sure, but we also encourage one another about the reality of the resurrection of Jesus and the return of Christ, that he will return and put everything back to rights. Number two, when we eat at our communion tables, we eat in the presence of God. Jesus serves his disciples at the table and he also, through the spirit of Jesus, serves us when we eat together. We also, when we eat together, we renew our commitment to follow Jesus. Just as Israel had these meals to kind of re-up their covenant, they're like, oh yeah, we're committed to this thing. So also, when we eat together, Tuesday night, 12 of us around the table, we're recommitting ourselves to follow Jesus, to pick up the cross, to say, not my will, but his be done. We encourage one another all the more as the day draws near, as the scriptures say. But also, interestingly enough, as this morphs in in the New Testament, we see the New Testament practices that all are welcomed at the table except the rebellious. And, and what I mean by that is, Jesus absolutely, he ate and drank with those that were super far from God. Tax collectors, prostitutes, for sure. But then we see in the New Testament that once someone comes into the kingdom, once you enter, and this is you, once you enter in through the waters of baptism and you're in, you're part of the table until you're in rebellion. If you are, and I don't just mean like somebody's like, oh dude, I'm just struggling with this thing. That's not what I mean. Rebellion means that you're like, yeah, I know what God says, I know what the Bible says, I know what you're explaining to me, but you know what? I have peace and I prayed about it and I'm gonna keep doing this thing. That's rebellion. And the reality is that the scripture tells us that those who are in rebellion are not to share the table with us. Instead, we go to them and we say, hey man, repent, turn from your wrong thinking and then come back and be reconciled and join us at the table. So, to circle all the way back to the very beginning, we land here. Communion, and what I mean by that is relationship, fellowship with God is restored at the table. God wants more than anything to be in relationship with you. So much so that he sent his one and only son to the altar to be sacrificed for you so that you can go to the table and eat with him. That's the story. And you know, I believe that we might not have all the solutions to loneliness in our city and the digital age and the emptiness that many of us experience, but I do think that there is something radical that we have to offer. It's this life around the table centered in celebration on what Jesus has done. Reminding each other of God's goodness and faithfulness recommitting to one another to follow him even when it's hard, going after those that are straying and bringing them back to the table. God has been eating meals with his people since the beginning of humanity. And what we celebrate right now in the Lord's Supper is just this current stage of the meal. But when we do this, we also are looking forward to this final banquet. You know, 
the lamb that was slain, Jesus, bought with his blood people from every tongue, tribe, nation, culture, ethnicity, and people group. And there is a day coming when all of those people will be gathered, when heaven comes to earth in fullness. And we see God just like Moses and the elders did when they were on that meal on the top of the mountain. There is a day coming when we will see God face to face and we will sit at a giant like kinfolk table and there will be people from every tongue, tribe, and nation and God will be there and we will eat with him. And it will be a time of peace, a time of prosperity, whereas the scripture says in metaphor that the lion will lie down with the lamb. There'll be no more strife between man. There'll be no more strife with the environment and the animal kingdom. And when we eat together now, we look forward in hope to that day. Last quote by Hicks, totally worth it. Last one, God never intended an altar. Instead, God intended a table to enjoy the communion of his people. While the altar epitomizes the toning work of God in forgiving sin, the table epitomizes the experience of communion. The altar, the cross of Jesus Christ, was a means to an end. It was, it was the penultimate act of God in order to bring about, through atonement, the ultimate act of God, which is communion. God absolutely will do anything to bring you back into relationship with him. And for some of you right now, I've just had this sense that there's some that you just struggle deeply with this. You think that there's an exception, that God doesn't love you like that. Your own feelings towards yourself misinterpret and you lay those on God. Well, I feel this way about myself, so God must not love me, but you're absolutely wrong. God would move heaven and earth to bring you into relationship with him, and he has. And he invites you to the table. The altar and the table. It's a beautiful story of the triune creator God who lacks nothing in himself, perfectly satisfied in himself, yet so moved to share his love with you that he sacrificed his own son on the altar so that we could be at the table and with him celebrate life that is truly life. Let's go ahead and stand and pray together.